Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Donald Trump and taxes. So Richard, uh, Donald Trump has been in the headlines recently uh, as he is wont to be. This time for some criticisms he's made of the hedge fund class and he's made a couple of comments that I want you to parse. He was having this conversation in the context of taxes, which we'll get to momentarily. But I want you to start with this quote. Trump said, quote, the hedge fund guys didn't build this country. These are guys that shift paper around and they get lucky. Uh, Now, that is not a view that is unique to him. That's a criticism that we've heard a lot in recent years, especially when we think back to the financial crisis in 2008. The argument basically being these guys don't create any real sort of tangible value. They just operate in this sort of abstract pretend economy. What do you make of that criticism? Well, the first thing, of course, is it's faintly familiar. It's exactly the same kind of criticism that one hears from Elizabeth Warren when in talking about the highways. She said, you guys didn't build that. The rest of us did, and you're taking advantage of it. So the implicit text here is people are drawing down enormous salaries, not providing any kind of benefits one sort or another to anybody else but themselves, and magically they're able to keep this thing going time and time again. Well, it can't be right. I mean, it turns out that if it were a self-contained economy, that economy has cost. And the only people who benefit them from that economy are the insiders. Where are they going to get the money in order to keep things going? They get the money from outsiders. Now, why do outsiders pay them? Because what happens is the financial markets are very intimate connected with the rest of the market. And the ability of people to create accurate pricing by trading amongst themselves creates a huge external benefit for everybody else who actually wants to buy and sell real goods or to hedge particular kinds of transactions, currency transactions, the purchase of commodities or raw materials and the like. So the way in which the system works is that what these people do do is they keep liquidity going. That means whenever you want to go to the bank or an ATM, you can get your money out. You want to run a credit card transaction, you know how to do it. Uh, You want to basically bill something for a telephone call, they can do that to a fraction of a penny, quite literally these days. And all of these things depend upon people with a great deal of financial and architectural skills to put them together. And what happens is the rest of us pay them very large sums in order to do this because even Even though they are a small part of every business, there's no business in this country which can operate without their system, without their assistance and support. And so when you start aggregating up all of the benefits that they give to other people, well, then they're going to get a lot of money. Now, do they ship paper around? Oh, they don't really ship paper. They don't use paper anymore. But what he's trying to say (laughs) is that he wants to analyze them or analogize them to sort of ordinary government bureaucrats who do exactly that. But they're not shipping paper, they're shifting risk. They're dividing it. They're diversifying it. They're pooling it. They're putting it in the hands of people who can deal with it better than anybody else. And when you start to do that, there are real gains. And what happens is the more efficient you make the support mechanism, the more efficient the rest of the so-called real economy is going to work. And then there's the question of luck. Well, I mean, in Trump's world, people only have good luck if they're hedge fund operators and everybody else seems to have bad luck. But people have good luck from time to time. You could be Hillary Clinton and trade and magically make lots of money when somebody's prepared to lose on the other side of a transaction. But generally speaking, luck doesn't keep anything going. 
It's skill that is really needed in order to make these transactions work. And it's a competitive market out there. Lots of firms having very small shares of the market, and they bid for the talent that they need. And it's a pretty accurate reflection of what the talent contributes by figuring out what the talent turns out to be paid. So what it is is this kind of a cynical, know-nothing sort of statement by a person who really ought to know better. But he's running for boats. He's not trying to do an analytic, an analytic um, dissection of the way in which the system works with an eye of informing the public at large. And that makes him something of a demagogue. Now, the other criticism here, Richard, and one that Trump has sort of forced other GOP candidates to talk about is the, the tax on carried interest. This is a somewhat technical issue that keeps coming up in recent years because I think it underscores the sense that some people have – that the system is tilted a bit too much in favor of the wealthy. Trump is critical of the way the current system works. It has to do with the discrepancy between standard income tax rates and capital gains rates. Explain what's going on there. Well, this is a complicated kind of problem, but uh, the best way to understand it is to take complete polar opposites and see how they work. So the classical capital gains transaction is you buy a share of stock in you have no other interest but that stock, and the thing goes either up or down. And for you, that's investment income because it only depends upon the labors of others or the vagaries of various kinds of markets. You have some degree of choice as to when you sell those particular shares. The government could say, we don't care about your selling the shares. We're going to tax you for any increment in value that you get, whether or not you sell. But that's an administrative nightmare that no tax system has ever been able to do. And so what happens is you wait until sale. Well, if there's a very high tax rate, people are not going to sell because they're going to then have to make do with the smaller fraction of after-tax dollars. What you do, therefore, is you lower the capital gain rate so that people will be induced to sell their shares and then reinvest in something else which may be a more productive asset. Indeed, in my own view, I think that the correct treatment in many cases is to say that if you sell shares and immediately reinvest the proceeds um, in another kind of company, we don't want you to pay gain. We give you a lower tax basis so that when you ultimately dispose of the shares in order to consume the income, then you pay the higher tax. And the advantage that you get out of that system is that it allows you to move assets to a much more efficient use than would otherwise be if people are not going to be able to invest and reinvest based upon economic realities. What the point of a low capital gains tax is, is to try to replicate the investment choices that people have in a tax-free universe. Now, when you earn income, it's really something else. You put your labor into this stuff, and what happens is you get a paid a wage or a salary or a commission or something of the sort, and the rule is you pay the tax on that the moment that it basically comes into your account with a few technical variations. And everybody knows that earned income is going to be taxed at a higher level because you don't have the realization possibility of just referring the gain, deferring the gain into some later time. And so what you do is you have two polar opposite systems. When you're dealing with guys who invest in the companies in which they also work, everything turns out to be mixed. Um, so you certainly get labor involved in labor income, therefore, by investing or working for a hedge fund. But if, in fact, you own some kind of a position in the business and the value of the shares go up, to some extent, you're also an investor and you should get the benefit of the lower capital gains rates like your other investors. And so when you have this amalgam, what you have to do is to choose one end or the other, or so we're told. And what happens 
happens is the tax system chose the approach which has relative undertaxation, which is essentially the capital gains approach, as opposed to relative overtaxation, which is what you get if you do the ordinary income approach. And technically, if you're going to stay within the framework of an income tax system to begin with, it may be sensible to try to find a blended rate in which half the gain gets taxed under one regime and half the gain taxed on the other. But so far, you know, the hedge fund people are very powerful. Um, people, I think, are rightly worried about upsetting an apple cart that generates so much value. And all the efforts for reform have been very loud, but they've not been very successful. And it's not likely that they're going to move anywhere, at least as so long as conventional Republicans, i.e. anybody other than Donald Trump, are in charge of the picture. Can I get you to weigh in for a moment? Well, you sort of – we came close to it, but on the, the sort of fundamental question here, if you take that current framework as a given, federal taxation of income as opposed to consumption, is the, uh, is the justification strong in your mind for taxing capital gains at a different rate than regular income? Yeah, I do. I think the question about the lock-in effect is extremely important. And the other way in which to do this is to have a more complicated regime that I hinted to, which is to the extent that you take your gains from capital gains and reinvest them, what happens is we put you under no tax. But we give you the low basis so that when you ultimately sell, then you're going to pay a larger amount of gain. And what this does, it means that you don't pay any tax until there is some form of consumption. And in the meantime, what happens is the economy hums along at a more efficient rate, and that will yield higher income from all people through job income and probably greater dividends as well. So what you lose on the capital gains transaction, you will gain on the other side. And, and I think there's a lot to be said for that kind of position. I remember shortly after Bob Lucas won his Nobel Prize, what he did was to kind of you know, think about all this stuff publicly. And he said when he started his career, he was in favor of very, very high capital gains rates up and down the board. And then 20 years later, he came to the conclusion that you didn't want to tax them at all. So uh, there are many people who have this kind of view one way or another. And I think in general that going low on capital gains is necessary, at least if you're going to work within an income tax. I might also add that we already have provisions that do this non-recognition stuff. If you're part of a reorganization of a corporation and your shares of corporation A are swapped for shares in corporation B and the assets move a little bit, you just get the carryover basis. You don't have to pay tax on that gain. And that's under Section 368 of the Internal Revenue Code. And then there are like-kind exchanges for real estate where, again, exactly the same pattern takes place. So all I'm suggesting is that you generalize it outside the scope of reorganizations and outside the scope of like-kind exchanges uh, to have a more general rule. And that gets you very close to a consumption tax without having to do all the other alterations, which might be very difficult to implement. Well, that's what I wanted you to explore for a moment because in your column on this in Defining Ideas, you do suggest the possibility of a federal consumption tax as a, as a preferable alternative to the current system. Explain why that is. Well, what happens is the greatest advantage of a consumption tax is you no longer care where the money comes from. Um, what you care about is how it is treated. Uh, so essentially the simplest way in which to understand this is if you get a bunch of income and you put it into a lockbox like an IRA account, an individual retirement account, and it sits there, you don't pay any tax on it. Then when you take it out to spend it, you pay the tax at that particular time. And the advantage of this system, one, is that you don't have to distinguish between capital gains and ordinary incomes. People can shield as much as they want from taxation so long as they don't consume it. And so therefore, you don't care where it comes out of. 
This means that capital asset markets are going to be much more efficient in the way in which it turns out um, that they operate. In addition, it means that you get rid of the double tax on savings because right now you pay tax when you receive income and then when you store it in a standard investment vehicle, you pay another tax. Uh, If you consume the stuff immediately, you don't pay the second tax so that there tends to be a Uh, shall we say, a slant or a bias in favor of immediate consumption under the income tax, which is avoided underneath the consumption tax. The price that you have to pay for this is that you now have fewer assets in the tax base so that the rates that you have to charge are somewhat higher. But if you can expand the economy, as I think you would with a consumption tax, then I think the increased size of the economy dynamically will offset the uh, disabilities and disadvantages that are associated with the smaller base. And then the next question you're going to have to ask is, uh, how do you tax this consumption income? Well, I, that was actually the point that I was going to bring us to, Richard, because you, 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 uh, you hinted at this a moment ago. So let me um, – take this where you will, but let me start with two of the criticisms you sometimes hear of the consumption tax proposal. And I think they're really two sides of the same coin. The one being that if you were to do that at the federal level, as you, as you said – uh, because the level would have to be high enough, you'd, you'd create a fair amount of incentives for avoidance for under-the-counter transactions. And the other being that it's it's much more complex because the point of taxation is so much more dispersed because it's by transaction instead of by individual. Do, do either of those things worry you? Well, it depends on how you structure the tax. I mean what I did in effect was to use a consumption tax which built off the standard IRA structure. So you put your money into your IRA account and you get the deduction. The moment you take it out and you pay tax on it, we don't care what you do with it. Uh, So the point about all of this is we don't want to have to chase down individual transactions. Once we know that the money is no longer safely secreted, we tax you and you can spend the residue in any way you see fit. And that means in effect that the only locus of taxation is the release, just as it is with the current IRA. And if you do that, I think you could get rid of most of the administrative difficulties associated with this issue. There are some questions about how you tax consumer durables and things like that. So you buy a stove that's worth, say, $1,000. It's going to last 10 years. Have you consumed the entire 1000 in the first year or do you have to depreciate it? My inclination is to forget about the depreciation and simply to treat the entire money as consumed in the first year. And then by way of offset in the subsequent years, there's no additional tax to pay on that because all the consumption has already been taxed. So that's at most a timing issue. And generally, I don't think timing issues should be allowed to derail really important structural changes, particularly since under the income tax, there are all sorts of timing issues that always arise anyhow. So the final question that I'll put to you as – I guess as an ordinal matter, how, how important is tax reform? I guess what I'm really asking you, can we, can we muddle through with the current system or is there a real urgency to getting it changed soon? Well, there are two possible approaches that you can take. One is to sort of try to systematically simplify the current system. Our current system taxes income, but the number of qualifications and exceptions to it, fake deductions and expenditures, various conventions and so forth is so great um, that uh, the excesses overwhelm the basic system. So one perfectly sensible line of control is to say we're going to treat all adjusted income as basically the same thing. 
And we simply don't want to worry about any of these special deals that we give to certain kinds of investments in certain sort of industries and so forth. And I'm certainly in favor of that kind of simplification. In fact, I don't see anything other than special interest arguments that run in the opposite direction. So unless you're a peculiar fan of ethanol on the one hand or wind and solar power on the other, <laughs> you really don't want to be subsidizing those kinds of things, just as you don't want to be over penalizing fossil fuels above and beyond the level that they cause harm to an environment. So if you do that, it would be fine. The second simplification you could do within the current system, which meets with fierce resistance, is to flatten it out. Uh, a flat tax is much easier to administer because all the timing problems disappear. You don't care whether you tax it in this year or next year because the same rate is there. There's no bunching effect. You don't care whether or not you give it away to your children in a low tax bracket or keep it yourself because you're going to pay the same rate either way. And so what happens is if you keep the flat tax, the whole system is going to work a lot more easily because there'll be many fewer administrative drags to its operation and a lot more clarity in what is going on. Uh, people fiercely oppose this because they're in favor of progressive redistribution, but we've already seen how that plays out. You know, in the last six years, we have a lot of redistribution in all sorts of ways and median income has dropped. Average income less so. That's because the rich people are better able to deal with this complexity than ordinary people who are constantly being badgered out of jobs by various kinds of restrictions that take place in the labor market and everywhere else. Or you can go to the consumption tax. And if you go to the consumption tax and you make that progressive, you're going to have a lot of the problems that you have with the progressive income tax. And so I guess I almost think that the flatness point is more important um, than the income versus the consumption tax. And you know, with some reflection and some change in my own position, I think today that now basically I prefer a flat consumption tax. And the easiest way to get there is to make as few alterations as is possible with respect to personal income. And the one that you want is you defer income when it goes into that new expanded IRA account and you tax it the moment the thing starts to come out. And if you did that, I think it would get a lot easier than what we have. And in the end, I think everybody would be better off because an expanding pie always reduces the tension over redistribution and its various troubles, tribulations, and trials. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.